This edition of the Northern Miner Podcast is sponsored by Mine Expo International, the world's largest mining trade show. See thousands of new products and services at the Las Vegas Convention Center from September 28th to 30th. Registration is now open, so visit MineExpo.com to register. You don't want to miss this opportunity. Welcome to episode number 183 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm your host. I'm your online and newspaper helper. And I am also your social media helper. And how about that zero dollar oil? How about that negative oil? <laughs> that was, uh, I took many screenshots of the oil price going down to uh, minus, I thought, is it at minus 40? Let me look at my phone. Let me look at my phone. I got some great screenshots because I felt like we were in a historic moment. And what's funny about that whole oil price thing is it's obviously a huge story. It's historic. Yeah, minus, minus $22, minus $36, minus $36.44, down 299.45%. Now, the thing about this oil thing, and you listen to interviews from the experts, and this is for the May contract, which expires actually the day we're recording this program, and that has an effect. So there is there's a lot of sort of technicalities to that negative oil price, and it is a big deal, and it is historic. And even Canadian oil, I saw was at minus a penny. I don't know if it got worse than that. It sounds kind of good if it's only minus a penny. But yeah, like the June contract is a different story. It's not necessarily that much better and maybe it'll get worse. But if you look out to oil to November, it's still trading at $20 a barrel. So don't let that headline give you a head fake. Like it, it's huge. It's historic. It definitely means something. But don't be, don't get faked out by it either. So with that being said, we have a product called the Daily Oil Bulletin, which is part of Glacier Resource Information Group, which the Northern Miner is a part of. And check it out. It's got lots of incredible data and news, and it's a really cool product. So it's dailyoilbulletin.com. And also a little bit of housekeeping here. We do have the Canadian Mining Symposium coming. If you go to northernminer.com and you click on events and you go to 2020 Canadian Mining Symposium and it has this great title, Mining Days in Canada. I love that title. And you get more of the best speakers in the mining industry. We have Sean Boyd, CEO of Ignico Eagle Mines. Don Lindsay from Tech Resources. He's the CEO just in the news. Uh, so that's a very... Timely thing. I guess what I should mention it's going to be digital this year. So this is the 2020 version of the Canadian Mining Symposium. Could be kind of great for a lot of people to attend because I think normally it's a little trickier because it's in London normally at the uh, Canada House location. So it's pretty hard for people to go to that. And it's sort of, there's kind of a bit of a preference given to accredited investors. And uh, so now it's open. So if you want to check out the Canadian Mining Symposium, just go to northernminer.com, events, Canadian Mining Symposium, 
click on register and you can register for free. Also attending will be Jeffrey Christian of the CPM Group, who I love to quote and read his commentaries here on this show. And Joe Foster, who is Portfolio Manager and Gold Strategist at Van Eck. So that is coming up on June 16th to 18th, 2020. Three days. And that is in two months and one day. We even have the countdown clock. So today's episode, I'm very excited to present you with Carl A. Williams, who is Senior Reporter at the Northern Miner. And he joined I think only in February, uh, maybe it was late January. I'm not sure, but he's been doing an outstanding job and he's got this really scientific background. He has done a bachelor's in science with honors in physics with laser physics. He's a master's in science of radiation and environmental protection. And he has a PhD in analytical chemistry. So we are going to get into it in this episode and kind of the start of a little series I'm going to do just to uh, interview the staff of the Northern Miner. We'll bring in Alicia Hyatt hopefully next week and she's at the Canadian Mining Journal. She's the editor-in-chief there and they've been doing an excellent job of following the coronavirus and its impact on the mining industry. Really, you know, diligent, great work done there. And also hopefully we'll bring on Trish Saywell again who has been at the Northern Miner since I've been there uh, in 2012, and I think she was there much earlier. Uh, so she is a veteran. So lots to look forward to. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. Find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner, on Facebook and LinkedIn, and also on YouTube, where we now host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available. And now on to the news. And turning to the website, Quebec is open for business. At least its mining operations are open for business. Quebec has deemed mining an essential service, and that's a pretty big deal because there are a lot of mines in Quebec. Quebec's Premier François Legault announced on Monday that mining operations in the province are an essential service that mines will be allowed to start back up on April 15th with additional health and safety precautions. And in response, several miners have issued press releases announcing plans to restart their operations. You do get the sense that the world has now adjusted and is now trying to move forward after that kind of initial shock in early March, early to mid-March, and now the virus is still here, but you get the sense that people are now trying to, it's the new normal. And now people are trying to figure out how do we continue and reduce the damage that is being caused economically. So Canadian Malarctic, which is jointly owned by Agnico Eagle Mines and Yamana Gold, will restart on Wednesday, and this was written on April 14th, so it is already open because we are recording on April 21st. So that opened last week, although the ramp up is expected to take several weeks. And that's the thing. I mean, some of these mines, they probably got orders on pretty short notice that they had to shut down. These mines are big machines, so you don't just press a button to turn it on and off or flick a switch. So this is expected to take several weeks. And 
Yeah, the Canadian Malarctic was placed on care and maintenance on March 24th. Agnico Eagle is also taking steps to resume operations at its wholly owned La Ronde Complex and Gold X Mine. And they're going to provide updates with their first quarter results at the end of the month. I Am Gold's Westwood Mine will also restart on April 15th with an anticipated one-week ramp-up period. So that one's a little quicker. And they placed their mine on care and maintenance on March 25th. And Eldorado Gold announced it will reopen its Lamac operation on April 15th, following the move to care and maintenance on March 24th. And the government's announcement was due to the importance of mining in the supply chain, generating goods and services, but exploration activity in the province will remain on hold until May 4th. I think one of those essential services is tax revenues too, but that's just my humble opinion. And hey, let's face it, mining is necessary for the supply chain. One would think the delay from taking ore out of the ground until it gets into a product in Ikea or the store shelf would be quite a long time. But there you have it. Uh, it mining is considered importance to the supply chain. And I think if you take a big enough perspective, it definitely is. And finally, additional precautions that the companies are taking are temperature screening, physical distancing, and the use of personal protective equipment. That temperature screening thing, I mean, people talk about how the world will be different. And just like after 9-11, we all had to take our shoes off at the airport. You wonder about this temperature screening thing. You wonder about that. Like if they find a vaccine, you won't need that. But until then, that temperature screening thing, I'd keep your eye on that. So Quebec is reopening, has reopened. Meanwhile, we have this other story, another story. That first one was from the Canadian Mining Journal staff, probably Magda Gardner. She writes a lot of the stories there. And we have another story from the Canadian Mining Journal, First Nations Concerned About Quebec's Mines Reopening. And First Nations in Quebec and Labrador have raised concerns about the reopening of mining operations in Quebec, fearing that movement in and out of fly-in, fly-out camps will increase transmission of the coronavirus into their communities. In a statement, Assembly of First Nations Quebec Labrador, the AFNQL Chief Ghislaine Picard, noted that many mines in the province are located on First Nations territories First Nation leaders have taken measures to limit access to their communities, which to date have produced encouraging results with a relatively stable positive case rate of COVID-19. We judge that Quebec's decision to allow the resumption of mining operations in a hurry is dangerously compromising the efforts made by our communities to slow the spread of the disease in the regions. In this regard, Picard said, the movement and comings and goings, fly-in, fly-out of mining workers is of great concern. I would also like to reiterate that the pandemic does not exempt governments from their duty to consult. So a bit of a territorial issue there. Who decides? I mean, when you get these emergencies, the government just starts making decisions. It sounds like the First Nations are sort of saying, hold on here, you still need to consult us. So... First Nations show concern, and I'm just going to read you a little bit about the AFNQL. They represent 43 First Nation communities in Quebec and Labrador, representing 10 nations, the Abenaki, the Algonquin, 
the Akti Kameku, the Cree, the Hurons Vendat, Inu, the Maliseet, the Mi'kmaq, the Mohawk, and the Naskapi. And as of April 9th, so that's a couple of weeks ago now, uh, 40 people from First Nations communities in Canada had tested positive for COVID-19. Four in Saskatchewan, 11 in Ontario, 25 in Quebec, and five cases among the Inuit of Nunavik. So there you have it. So concern from the First Nations, a bit of a power struggle there. And turning over to the Silvercrest story, which I kind of delighted in. If you remember, I believe we had it on the last episode or maybe the episode before. At the height of the crisis in March, the National Bank Financial backed out of its $75 million bought deal financing with Silvercrest Metals, citing that the pandemic was an issue. And Silvercrest disputed that because they said, well, the pandemic was already known. You just thought precious metals were going to go up. And at that point, they hadn't gone up. So National Bank Financial backs out, precious metals recover and show a lot of strength. And then they have a non-brokered private placement and they are oversubscribed to the tune of $101 million. So their initial deal with National Bank Financial was $75 million. And now they've raised $101 million in a non-brokered private placement. It kind of looks like Silvercrest had the last laugh, doesn't it? I mean, I only know this from these stories. I'm not talking to the people there. Who knows? But I mean, Silvercrest was talking about, you know, starting a lawsuit against National Bank Financial. You wonder if it's still going to go ahead, right? Because I mean, the world's not that big. And now that Silvercrest kind of has what it wants, which is financing, you wonder if it's worth their while to start suing bankers. That being said, there is a sense of perhaps a gentle touch of betrayal from Silvercrest's perspective of what happened there. And it's sort of that old adage, I don't know if it's an adage, but that old sort of idea that you only learn who people are in the midst of a crisis. When things are good, everybody's good and it's great. Everybody can be great. But it's during a crisis that you really see who's there for you. And I think from Silvercrest's perspective, National Bank Financial was not there for them. So there you have it. Happy ending for Silvercrest. And we have this great picture. It looks like they have a really nice organization just from their pictures. We have this great shot of the staff there and they're all smiling. They all look pretty happy, kind of young, some older. It looks like a family organization over at Silvercrest. So hope you do well with that 101 million and put it to good work. Continuing on, Barrick is maintaining their production guidance, their gold output, despite a Q1 drop. And this is from Cecilia Jamazmi from Mining.com. The world's second largest producer of gold expects first quarter output to fall by 8.5% as it had to scale down operations due to measures to stop the coronavirus. Barrick now expects to churn out 1.25 million ounces of gold in the first three months of the year slightly below the 1.37 million ounces it produced in the first quarter of 2019. Don't forget that story, which we put on page one of the newspaper a couple of weeks ago, that Barrick School is 5 million ounces a year through 2029. So 1.25 million ounces in the first quarter. As long as they can keep that up, that's 2.5 million for half and 5 million for the full year. And so the gold major remains confident that it will make its annual production guidance of between 4.8 million and 5.2 million ounces of gold. 
And finally, I just want to look at this junior story, just for the sake of uh, being comprehensive here and looking at all aspects of the mining industry. American Pacific has acquired the Madison Project, and they acquired that from privately held company called Madison Metals. And so American Pacific Mining picked it up. Now, they used to be Western Pacific Mining, if you remember them. I actually went on a site visit back in, I think, 2014 to their property in near Salt Lake City. And that was the most beautiful hotel I'd ever stayed in in my entire life, actually. What is it called? Something like the American Hotel. I can't remember. It was shockingly beautiful. I had a little Juliet balcony there. We all thought it was kind of hilarious. I think they, they didn't really realize, or maybe it just seemed reasonable. I think they were going for nice, but I didn't think they were going for that nice. Maybe they just got a deal. Either way, that was one heck of a hotel room. Two rooms, Juliet balcony overlooking some massive garden. It was the biggest washroom I've probably ever been in. So let's see what American Pacific is up to now. I mean, so they pick up this property, and what's so interesting about it is Rio Tinto was a joint venture partner on the property. As Warwick Smith, the CEO and founder of American Pacific Mining, said, we are by no short order thrilled to have picked up this asset, and to pick it up with a joint venture partner like Rio Tinto was a coup. It's not very often that a company our size gets to team up with the second largest company in the world. I think he meant the second largest mining company. I think the second largest company in the world. If it's not Apple, maybe it's Amazon or it's not Exxon anymore. It used to be Exxon for decades, I think. But anyway, where are we here? So the Madison Copper Gold Project in Montana contains two historic underground mine developments, Madison and Broadway. And the property is 48 kilometers from the Boot Mine, which turned out 21 billion pounds of copper, 715 million ounces of silver, and 2.9 million ounces of gold, and vast amount of zinc, lead, and manganese when it was in production between 1955 in 1982. And Eric Satterholm, who's a geologist at American Pacific Mining, said it was a colossal concentration of metal, world-class in every aspect. So pretty cool. You can see the pictures on Northern Miners. That's by Trish Saywell, some real original reporting for the Northern Miner and kind of thing you only get on the Northern Miner. So with that, let's turn to metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we would like to once again thank our friends at Infomine.com for providing us with these prices. If you ever want to find them for yourself, just go to Google and put Infomine and metal prices into the search box, and it will be the first result. And on April 21st, gold is trading at $1,692.41 per ounce. That is... $27 lower than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $15.18 per ounce. That is $0.36 cents lower than last week's quote. Platinum is trading higher at $765.40. That is $6 higher. Palladium is trading lower at $2,085.85. And that is $156 lower than last week. So platinum perks up, 
gold, silver, and palladium perk down. And on April 17th, copper is at $2.35 per pound. That is 10 cents higher than last week's quote. Aluminum is 2 cents higher at 67 cents per pound. Lead is a penny lower at 75 cents per pound. Nickel is 19 cents higher at $5.39 per pound. Tin is 2 cents higher at $6.90. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.38. And zinc is 3 pennies higher at 88 cents per pound. So in this last little move, zinc hit a low of 84 cents. Then it moved up to 85 cents last week, and now it's at 88 cents. Finding zinc is kind of the most interesting to watch. Palladium is still interesting, but zinc was doing so terrible uh, that it kind of is getting my attention. So with that, those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Northern Miners' Carl A. Williams, the senior reporter recently hired in the last couple of months. And he has this great science background, and it is a nice freewheeling conversation through many of the scientific issues that are pressing on the mining industry, including biogeochemistry, AI, and space mining. So enjoy the talk, and we'll see you on the other side. Today is Carl A. Williams, and Carl recently joined the Northern Miner a few months ago as a senior reporter. And how are you dealing with the whole coronavirus thing? I guess you're working from home now. Uh, tell us what life is like for you. Yeah, sure. Adrian, hi. Good morning. And, and great to be on the show. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, fine, actually. Uh, we we only recently moved to Toronto, actually. Um my partner and I, we were based in um, Ottawa for the last year or so. So we literally moved 10 days ago amid the, the pandemic. So that was an interesting experience and went remarkably well. But um, I've, be, I've been, uh, and my partner, well, we've both been working at home for a number of years now. So I think we're kind of used to the um, a sort of a, a form of self-isolation anyway over that time we've We've got our own routines of work, working from home. We, we pass each other a little bit like ships in, uh, at the night during the day and then meet up for a cup of tea uh, every sort of few hours or so. But um, yeah, handling it quite well, actually. Um, it, it is a bit frustrating moving to a new city and you haven't got a chance to sort of get a, a handle on the neighborhood or, or check the city out. But, um, you know, such is the situation at the moment. Tell me, you went to PDAC. Was that the first time you ever went to PDAC? You got those great pictures of the escalator shot and... The escalators are sort of a typical PDAC image, but I found it particularly poignant this year with all the coronavirus stuff and everything to see everybody crowded up, especially three weeks later when we put it in the paper. It was all the more poignant. Uh, so tell me about your PDAC experience. Yeah, absolutely. It was the first time, um, Adrian, and um, sort of exciting in that respect to, to be this sort of my first PDAC conference. But but you're absolutely right. Uh, I think it was very much the sort of beginning of uh, at least the North American experience of the pandemic. Obviously, it'd be, uh, cases were appearing before, but um, I think that was the first sentence. And uh, 
certainly uh, some of the conversations I had uh, with the uh, delegates of the conference, they were quite surprised that it actually went ahead in in the first place. And and I obviously what was very obvious by the absence was the Chinese delegation. And I think that that in and itself maybe spoke volumes of us finding ourselves in a situation some weeks later when, no surprise, cases uh, were popping up at the conference. But but overall, in terms of my experience of the conference, was very positive. I, I found it fascinating, and the various breakout sessions I had uh, was a, was a really interesting experience and great to chat the, the, right across the board from the newest of juniors to the, the majors in the areas. It was a really interesting and, and value experience for myself as, uh, uh, as a new uh, arrival into the Northern Minor and, uh, and sort of a, a slight baptism by fires because I'd only literally <laughs> started about two weeks before. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, and even getting to uh, to the conference was difficult, even uh, even before the uh, various uh, restrictions on transport were introduced because of the pandemic. Because of the, um, we were having a number of um, disputes in Canada over a pipeline that's being uh, going through First Nations property. So, a train that I'd organised to get on from Ottawa to Toronto, they were all cancelled. Buses filled up quickly. Flights were uh, were not an option either because suddenly they are priced that had gone through the roof and I ended up having uh, took a, a car sharing down from Ottawa, which in current situation would be obviously the last thing that one... I imagine. But I, I made it there. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You know, that was a huge story before the conference was that, before the coronavirus actually started becoming a huge story, was that blockade. So it's funny how you don't hear anything about that anymore. Actually, the same here, Adrian. I um, I was so, I guess, wrapped up uh, with the Northern Miner, so all, all the all the challenges you face when starting any new job. Um, the fact that I was also based in Ottawa, and uh, obviously the head office was based in Toronto, um, so that was unusual to be starting a new job where you actually don't physically go into the office to to meet your your colleagues and uh, your co-workers. Um, yeah, I think that I, to my I didn't really keep abreast of it. As I say, I was so concerned with just trying to get myself in some way or another from Ottawa down to Toronto. It, it seemed at one stage walking might be the only option I had, although for, walking 450 kilometers didn't, wasn't hugely appealing. I think my grandfather might have done that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So the short answer is no, I'm not entirely sure what's happened with the blockade, but I agree. All, all other news around the world now seems to have disappeared other than anything that's related to the, the COVID-19 outbreak. So you write a lot of science articles. You have a background in science, did you did a degree in chemistry? Is that correct? Actually, sort of, just to get the chronology right, um, sure. uh, Adrian, I uh, my first degree was in physics, so I'm um, I'm a physicist at heart. I always say, but then my um, uh, with my master's degree, I sort of started to sort of look into sort of environmental uh, protection around radiation physics and uh, general sort of environmental uh, pollution uh, monitoring, and then ended up doing actually a PhD in chemistry. So. I sort of started life as a as a physicist, and uh, or started my at least my academic life, if you will, as a physicist, and then ended it as a an analytical chemist. And um, so, um, yeah, I was uh, I kind of fall between the uh, two stools at the moment. I I'm not qualified to join the Institute of Physics because my last degree was in chemistry, and I'm not qualified to join the Institute of Chemistry because my first degree is in physics. So, oh, that's I, funny. I'm sort of a uh, 
a sort of a scientific schizophrenic at the moment, I guess, um, Adrian. But um, but no, that's that's my background anyway, sort of on the physical sciences side anyway. Is that how you ended up in journalism? Like, where is, or did you just enjoy writing? And did, was that a jump, or was that something you were kind of already, I don't know, something you already saw as part of your plan? I guess it was, and I don't mean this to be a pun, certainly for all the chemists out there, but this is something of a slow burner, I guess, how I ended up in um, in journalism, Adrian. I, um, after maybe too long at university, I came out and went into environmental consultancy. So uh, I moved after literally within about two months of actually getting my doctorate, I was on a on a plane out to Delhi, and I worked out in India um, for um, a large environmental consultancy, which really sort of cut my teeth in in many respects, particularly in the consultancy field. So, and then pursued a, a career in uh, in climate change consultancy, which which I was uh, work which I was in for around about twenty years. But it was always the writing side of the of the of the job that really I enjoyed the most. It was that communication. It was actually explaining whether it was in written word or, or through presentations. And some years ago, I decided to sort of uh, take a quit life, as some of my friends have this described it, and um, went off traveling for a couple of years. And I was trying to figure out uh, what I wanted to do when I'd grown up. Unfortunately, I had grown up, and I still wasn't exactly sure what, what my path was going forward. But it was the really it was the writing. Writing always appealed to me. I was, I'm a voracious reader. Um, and um, and it was a, it was something that I always would wanted to pursue. And and then sometime later, I about five, six years ago, I decided to make the move and and came out of the consultancy field and um, started writing for a science, um, uh, a science communication company in Australia, where I was living at the time in Sydney. And mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's sort of blossomed from there. I've written a lot of science, hard, hard science stuff as well, really going to the sort of quantum computing and nanotechnology oh. and artificial intelligence. To honestly, some of the stuff that really, uh, I I take my hats off to the scientists out there. It's um, it's all very well me writing about it and understanding it, but these guys are actually on the ground uh, developing these these new advances. So um, so yeah, for about. But the last five years, I've been a science and a technology writer. It is astonishing, isn't it? I, I was watching a lecture from the Great Courses, and it was on how they tracked and how they basically discovered or proved the existence of gravity waves. And I think that was pretty recently. It was like 2017, 2018. I don't know if it was MIT or it was one of those universities in there. And it was astonishing. It was just absolutely astonishing what they what they had achieved it's almost hard to believe, but it's it was science. So I mean, it seemed pretty uh, credible. Uh, so so you come from this scientific background, which I find is actually makes it much more interesting than someone that say started in mining and now is writing about mining. You kind of have this really diverse background, so you have a kind of a maybe a bit more contrast than someone who came up through the industry. So tell me, uh, where does your how did you get involved in mining? Well, actually, coming back to the, the the sort of my academic studies again, Adrian, with my um, my PhD it was in, as I mentioned, it was in analytical chemistry, and I was really using what was a relatively new technique at the time. It was a lovely, uh, <laughs> lovely scientific terminology called inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. So, in 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 broad English, basically, it's an extremely powerful analytical technique, which is really run of the mill now for anybody analyzing a very i'm talking down to parts per billion parts per trillion and even even lower levels than that it's 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 technically or theoretically possible to actually detect 
single ions of atoms using this technology. Incredible. So, so yes, incredible. But we were very much, the, I'm talking about the early 90s now when I started my PhD. So this is very much the, the new kid on the block, if you will, as analytical technologies or analytical techniques. So I was using it, uh, the machine, to actually see if we could find gold in plant and soil samples around gold mineralized areas. So I uh, I was analyzing samples from um, Scotland, plant and soil samples from Scotland around a known area of mineralization. And my my supervisor, who was uh, from New Zealand, he'd gone out and collected samples from um, the North Island of New Zealand, called the Coromanda Peninsula, which again is a gold mineralized area. So basically, what I was looking at was taking these samples of so soil and uh, plants, breaking them down. So you use very strong acids. Uh, to break them down, put them into a solution so you can separate out the, the organic from the inorganic material. And that's how you analyze for gold. And sure enough, I was able to show through the analysis that the gold in the, in the plants and the soils, which, which correlated with themselves, but also correlated with the, the mineralization underneath. And this is a technique that uh, has been around for, for quite some time. In fact, from the beginning of the, of the 20th century. And, so that really started my interest in the mining area. And um, and so when I moved to Australia back in 2009, I took a position for as a in-house consultant for a large uh, company in Australia. One of their business streams was a uh, coal mining sector. So I spent quite a bit of time at various uh, coal mining sites around Australia, uh, essentially helping them to uh, minimize their uh, carbon emissions and um, improve their energy efficiency or site, make them more competitive and use sustainability as a uh, as a differentiator for them, if you will, in the market. And then we're very proactive in the area. And, and clearly mining, coal mining particularly has obviously issues, if you will, when around climate change. But so that's my uh, my interest has always been in uh, I've always had this background interest in mining and, and mineral exploration as well. Hence, Hence my PhD in that area. And ironically enough, I think the first article I wrote for the Northern Miner after being uh, interviewed for the uh, the reporting position was I'd mentioned this in the interview, and um, I were already asked to, to to submit that as a potential uh, story, which which was one of the first issues uh, that uh, I was involved in. So I've had a background in mining, if you will, Adrian, to put it more succinctly, and and, and a great interest over the years in it. In terms of um, sort of coming back to answering your other question. Yeah, no problem. Go ahead. This is very interesting. I remember that article. It was a great article. And I think there was also a Hall of Fame guy from the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame just this year. And there's a term that is used, I can't remember what they call it, for finding deposits or using plants. Do you, do you know the term? Yeah, biogeochemical prospecting. Okay, biogeochemical prospecting. Does it work? Or like, I mean, well, the first question is, well, is it economic? <laughs> you know, but I assume not. Like, you're not going to get a plant and make money out of knowing which plants are, like, I, I assume it's so small, the amount of gold in a plant. I mean, this is very layman. But uh, I assume, though, it's maybe an indicator of a gold deposit. Help me out here. Yeah, sure. No, you're absolutely right, Adrian. Um, you uh, don't imagine that you can go out and cut down a whole load of trees and suddenly you're going to have an ingot of gold. <laughs> Yeah. Um, sitting in front of you, you're really talking at best pathfinder, uh, a tree, for instance, that's able to be a pathfinder for gold will only in itself really have, uh, gold in its, uh, say in its foliage, uh, in its leaves at, you know, a, a few parts per billion level. 
So that's something that, that's a, a, a tree that's either on top of or, or very close to an area, say, gold mineralization. Um, yeah. So, no, he certainly, <laughs> you'd, um, you'd have to wipe out several, um, several continents worth of forest to get anything <laughs> okay. that, that you'd sort of be able to retire early on. But even at the parts per billion level, Adrian, you, that's a, a significant amount of gold that you're finding in, in, in a tree, whereas normal levels, say, for a, just an example, say a tree that was uh, uh, growing in an area of no gold mineralization, the amount of gold in there would either be low detection limits of whatever technique uh, ICPMS, it's indirectly coupled plasma, plasma mass spectrometry, I mentioned, either below the detection limits or so low indeed to say that there is absolutely no gold in there. So what you're really doing is is you're trying to identify levels of gold above a, a nominal non-mineralized area level. And if mm-hmm. you find these, uh, if you're able to use plants or trees or whatever type of biological material t- uh, you're taking um, uh, um, from the ground, if these show elevated levels in the parts per billion range, then you're you're starting to starting to think that our area could uh, be an economically viable gold deposit. And I say could. And are there known examples of people who have found deposits of note using this technique? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'd refer certainly our listeners to the, um, uh, to the issue. Uh, I'm trying to remember which particular issue it was. I think it came you know out. What? I'll, I'll find the link and I'll post it on the page of the podcast. Cool. Um, yeah, certainly there were companies in one particular gold, uh, company in Australia, uh, in operating in South Australia has actually used, um, an acacia tree there to actually find an economically devi- uh, viable uh, gold deposit um, in an area where normal drilling, uh, diamond drilling, was showing there was no mineralization. So the actual tree itself has actually pointed the company towards an area that more traditional exploration methods has shown wasn't a viable area. So you have a perfect example there of a technique that is extremely low cost in the sense of all you need is to pay someone to go out there and collect samples from a tree, which usually means just collecting leaves, say, from the, um, from a certain area. There are, there's obviously a, a very developed methodology around it, but, uh, that's essentially what it is. And they've shown this tree, this particular tree, and you can, the landscape in Australia is not, certainly in South Australia is not the landscape that, say, um, uh, North Americans might be used to, particularly in Canada. Um, very few trees there. So uh, when they do find a tree and they're able to collect some samples, in this particular case, yes, this directed them towards an area at which they're now actually uh, mining for the gold. So that's the example. But there are numerous examples over the years of not just gold, but various uh, copper. There are certain plants that are called hyperaccumulators, which they themselves are, are used to actually identify and find areas of mineralization. So it's a very well-known technique amongst many of the mineral exploration area industry rather but um, for many people it might be the first time even for those working in the industry that either have come across this or they may have read an article but really wasn't applicable for their situation so it's um it's potentially getting gaining more traction as it becomes more and more difficult to find new deposits and often these are in very remote locations very difficult to get to with uh, traditional exploration equipment so it does lend itself to to really helping uh, mineral uh, mineral exploration companies find new deposits but again like any technique it's used often in tandem 
with other more um, what we would consider more traditional mining techniques, maybe just to reaffirm um, validate results from other techniques. In and of itself, I wouldn't say you would rely on it wholly as a technique yourself to find mineralization. It was really it's an adjunct um, to other techniques. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Another uh, tool in your toolbox. Precisely. Okay. Now you've also written on AI in mining. And you wrote a big article for us recently there too, didn't you? Yes, yes. This is a. I must admit, this is one of my one of the areas I'm absolutely uh, fascinated in and, uh, and and immersed in at the moment. Adrian, I am um, without uh, trying to go into the uh, the the explanation of machine learning and AI and uh, uh, convoluted neural networks, which are extremely complicated, and I wouldn't even attempt to try to explain it at the moment because I'm sure we we get a number of experts in the area. Yeah. Uh, Maybe next complacent. episode. Yeah, yeah. Keep it simple for us. Uh, give I, us the big picture on I AI the, and mining and, I, and your article. Yeah, this particular article was a, a company based down in the States, down in Colorado. They've been using AI to assist with, again, mineral exploration, identifying minerals out there. And of course, what we have at the moment with all, as, as, as we touched on in our previous uh, question there, in terms of the different techniques to find minerals. Well, of course, every every technique shows up analysis and data, and that's where AI comes in. AI is so powerful when it comes to using large amounts of data and essentially to look for patterns. That's what mm-hmm. essentially machine learning, which is part of artificial intelligence, is a technique there, which they take in data, the old adage with data, rubbish in, rubbish out, make sure you've got good quality data, but we get thousands and thousands of uh, items of data when it comes to um, mineral exploration. So by putting this in, feeding it into the machine learning technique, which has these these layers called hidden layers, and these this is really where the magic happens in, in artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. They're able to look at the data, weight the data in these in these hidden layers, but then when they output the results, they also have what they call um, training data, which is actually accurate data, which say, for instance, uh, you're looking for an area of gold mineralization and a certain characteristics of the geology, the environment, the topography, et cetera, et cetera, which will point towards gold mineralization. So they t- will take a an area that has known gold mineralization, they will take the data around that and then use that to train the neural network. So it's a kind of a, a push-pull mechanism, Adrian, I think maybe is the best way of explaining it. Right, it, right. You put it that in. is machine learning, isn't it? That it takes the, the learning, is, and correct me where I'm wrong here, but my understanding is what makes it machine learning is it's learning from the data that it's taking in, and then it's kind of recalibrating somewhat its... Uh, approach would would that be a very simple way of putting it? Absolutely, and it's recalibrating itself against known outcomes. So it's a little bit like knowing the answer uh, before you've asked the question, but then mm-hmm. asking. Uh, I'm trying to find the best analogy for this, and some uh, unfortunately a lot of analogies die on their feet because of the complexity of AI. But I, the way that I see it is, it's really using a known set of results from one particular circumstance, which you then train the AI, which you are literally training the AI to learn to, this is what, okay, this is what we're trying to look for. This is the end goal. This is the answer. This is the solution. But we've got this whole load of data on one end that really is so much data, we can't make head no sense of it. You feed it into the AI, you weight up the data, you structured your your learning network there in order to um, look for a certain 
outcome. And then it goes through the data and it basically weights the data, analyzes the data, and looks for the relevant data, which is often... No, but yeah, okay, so, but, but to your point, and it's very interesting, actually, I think a lot of us have an inkling of what's going on with AI, but say what you brought up with this idea of starting with the end goal and then having this mass amount of data and really trying to get that data to to parse out or get the machine to parse out that data towards that end goal as a kind of, I mean, and you're trying to filter that data to a certain degree to get a result of this predetermined end goal. I didn't know that, though, that they would do something. So, you know, like I think conversations like this do help in understanding that. That's exactly it. They, they, they have an outcome they're looking for, but they have a huge amount of data to actually sift through to see if they can actually extract the relevant data. And again, a little bit like humans operate, we operate by identifying patterns. That's all the AI is doing at the most fundamental level, is I trend, trying to identify patterns in this huge amount of data. And it's not just literally a case of feeding the data in, as I, as I make a point in the article as well, Adrian. This data needs some pre-treatment before it gets actually uh, input into the AI system. And an interesting thing about these, what these called these hidden layers, and I think they've, they've used the word hidden quite, quite advisedly here, because a lot of the experts, who list, which I've been doing, de- sort of devouring books on AI, nearly every one of them, uh, and any articles you read on AI, they will say they're not entirely sure what's happening in these hidden layers. They aren't <laughs> able to interrogate it. It's a little bit like a, a, a what we say in science is a black box. What occurs in there, we're not entirely sure, but we know it does something special. This is where we are with machine learning at the moment. We have this extremely powerful tool, but there's no one out there really understands entirely how it's able to do what it does. But what it does is extremely powerful. In fact, and as I mentioned in this article, these, these chaps, there's two, two former academics uh, from the UK. They've developed this technique, and they were working on this technique back in the, back in the early 80s um, when they had computers they would run, and it would take them days. <laughs> Days and weeks to get an answer. Now, fortunately, with the power of computing these days, they've got that down to a few hours. But uh, these chaps have really developed a technique that actually you can input all this geological data, this topographical data, and it will pump out the other end. And this, they specifically looked around uh, the Yukon territory in uh, Canada. And um, they call it, uh, yeah, it used to be the Yukon. Now you use Yukon, but you can still use the Yukon. But yeah, I think they got rid of the the. That's the latest on oh, UConn. Really? So, okay, yeah. so it's the it's the uh, they've got rid of the definitive article now. Then, yes, exactly. So, uh, but they've really shown that this technique they were able to sift through huge amounts of data which they'd collected from uh, various uh, geological maps from the um, uh, I think it was the Canadian uh, Geological um, uh, Association uh, and. Uh, also, then added that uh, added to that information from mining companies, from their from technical reports from mining companies. So they collected a amassed a huge amount of information to feed in uh, to their AI system, and sure enough, they've been able to show that their system can recognize potential areas of uh, mineralization from this huge massive data that's been put into it as, as as a geologist would have to do, but literally having to physically go through the data, which 
um, is really uh, totally beyond really the capability of one individual or, or even a team of individuals to to analyze in a realistic length of time. So have these guys put a product together that they sell to ex- exploration companies, or no. what are these? Or is this purely theoretical at this point, or just no, you know experiments in a lab? They've gone beyond that. They certainly are. They've managed to commoditize their technology, if you will. And they are going out there, reaching out there to companies to say that they can assist them on their um, exploration front. In terms of how much penetration they have, I think they were certainly when I, and it was actually at PDAC when I interviewed one of the chaps who was presenting on it on a a breakout session on AI in the mining industry. And um, not necessarily he was cagey about um, who they were working with, but I think as as often I found with the mining industry, you know, they are often a little reluctant to talk about some of the clients they're working with and until that becomes public knowledge. I can imagine that. And so finally on the AI topic, and then I quickly want to go to space and then we should probably st- uh, leave it for another episode uh, going further. But so are there specific examples of say successful examples that their product has identified certain deposits do they say yeah look at we found this they haven't specifically at that stage to my knowledge um since i finished that article um writing that article well i i would be pretty sure that not long we'll be hearing more from this company um it sounds very promising but but yeah so it's that's where we are with this they're they're bringing it out and they're they want to get some practical uh, application of their technology now. Yep, exactly. Okay, and have you been following the space story that we put up recently on uh, Russia being outraged and Trump put out an order on that asteroids in the moon could be commercially mined. Are you following the space mining beat at all? Yeah, I'm following in so much as I, I, I certainly read the fascinating article that were, that we put out there. And um, I know this is an area that's really interesting for me as well. A, a part of my last uh, year when I was uh, writing for the Japanese Space Agency, I had a commission to do a lot of work with Springer Nature, and um, they uh, asked me to write a couple of advertorials for the um, Japanese Space Agency. And one of them was actually looking at exactly this, about asteroids asteroid mining, um, about putting uh, mining equipment on the moon to mine for minerals. So it's <laughs> it's a fascinating, in fact, also as part of that as well, they, um, uh, there's a Japanese company called Obayashi, and they are actually looking, and they are pretty certain by 2050 that they're in a position to develop a, um, a space elevator, which basically will be connecting, uh, it'll be around about, I'm just trying to remember exactly if I get the right figure, it'll be about 100,000 kilometers long. It'll be made of graphene nanotubes, the only material I have at the moment that is long enough, or, or strong enough rather, and flexible enough. And they are literally talking about having an elevator attached to the Earth that goes out 100,000 kilometers out in space with a weight added at the end. The best analogy I can think of this, Adrian, is literally if you're holding a tennis ball tied to a string and mm-hmm. you swinging it around, eventually the, the ball will cause the string to go taut. So this weight, this 12-ton weight at the end of this uh, carbon nanotube, 100,000 kilometer long nanotube, will stretch out and it'll be taut enough where you'll be able to, and that's this is what they're intended to do, is actually to be able to take equipment from Earth up to, say, the uh, International Space Station and mm-hmm. where they will then will be able to start developing um, something similar to the space station, space where they can actually then launch rockets from space to, say, to the moon, 
which will be infinitely cheaper, uh, more right. friendly than right. firing rockets. So I've digressed from your initial question. So yeah, I well, I'm just uh, I'm wondering what's what's going on in space and what what are you seeing and what you have a, this great scientific perspective. So yeah, just whatever you think is interesting, Carl. I I think it's I I, I think it's a fascinating area, and I uh, I was. I saw the PDAC as well. They had a, a special session just looking at exploring space in, in, in a mineral sense. And it was absolutely, I, I, unfortunately, I had to come out of it because I actually had to, had to go and attend the, the AI session instead. But um, what, what I think is particularly fascinating about it, and I think this segues into how, how you started with the question on the, uh, the asteroids and the moon and the, obviously now the superpowers being the, wanted to be the first to stake their claim there. I think what the really interesting there is, is who exactly has the mineral rights to these, uh, to space? And I think as ever, the legal side of this, um, we'll have to distill, develop some better ideas about who has due restriction, due restriction over areas of space. Uh, we know asteroids from an, from initial sampling second, these are laden with, um, potentially with water, potentially with a whole host of really useful, um, metals. If we're talking about going to a low, low carbon future with uh, electric vehicles, lithium, cobalt, we don't have a necessarily a problem at the moment with with lithium in terms of um say where we are with copper um we certainly seem to have a, a an abundance of lithium at the moment but if the electric vehicle market really takes off and this elect- electrification of the planet moving away from the more carbon intensive energy resources like coal even gas which is less carbon intensive but still produces emissions to uh, ideally electric electricity generated from wholly renewable sources of energy then um, these minerals that could be potentially on asteroids the uh, on the moon surface or mars these will become extremely important for us to to start mining and who has the mining rights are they governments? Will they be individual companies? I think there's a lot of questions to be asked around the around this area beyond just the technology itself as well. I agree. And I think one of the things that this virus has highlighted, and I think space mining as well, is really the importance of international institutions, like, you know, whether it's a WHO or the United Nations. I mean, they've these things have been sort of attacked for decades now. And I'm sure they'll continue to be, and sometimes legitimately. But I think more and more, I mean, we really need these institutions, you know, dysfunctional or not, we need to make them work uh, just as they had to, you know, after World War One and World War Two, they did it for a reason. It wasn't just a power grab. I mean, these are all debatable things and Maybe we shouldn't venture too far into politics. There is a need for us to do this. Otherwise, you're going to get crazy stories like Russia saying some pretty inflammatory things about the states and that order and all that. So anyway, with that digression, uh, so maybe we should wrap it up here and let's keep in touch. Uh, We're probably going to do a regular segment with Carl if he is so generous. And maybe next time, maybe we'll try and do a, a topic at a time. And if he writes a science article, we can just ask him about that and go into depth on each one. Sounds good, Adrian. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, and thanks for the invite. I, I look forward to uh, chatting further with you in the future. Okay, great. Okay, well, thanks again, Carl. And, uh, yeah, look for Carl A. Williams on thenorthernminer.com. He's our senior reporter. And uh, I'll put the link to that article on the trees and to AI on our podcast page. So look for it there. And, uh, okay, Carl, you take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Adrian. You take care. 
and we hope everybody takes care. Thank you for once again joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. We're going to have more from the staff. We may sneak in an earnings call. We'll see what's going on. We'll see if anything's interesting. Otherwise, stay tuned for our next edition of the newspaper. And I'll be tweeting out that cover probably on Monday. Feel free to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Email it to your friends. Until next week, take care.